Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. As I've mentioned on prior podcasts, um, the thing that you can do to support this podcast is go to iTunes and rate this podcast to leave a written review. I've been reading those and I appreciate you doing that. Um, To introduce my guests, my guests on today's podcast are my friends Gretchen and Brett Siemens. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We're primarily going to be talking about Gretchen's work. Um, She's working to get a PhD in psychology. She's working on her dissertation. We're going to talk about her dissertation, and she's looking to recruit people to be part of her dissertation. And some of you listeners may feel like that this might be a good fit for you. So that's one of the focuses of this podcast. And so be listening for that. Brett and and, um, Gretchen flew in from Wisconsin to do this podcast and to visit family here. And so we're really glad to have them in our home here in Salt Lake City. And we, um, we just hope this podcast to be helpful. Um, and let me just introduce um, Gretchen a little bit. Gretchen grew up in Tacoma. She's a B, they're both BYU graduates. Gretchen um, has a BYU degree in French and then two master's degrees. After that, and is working on her PhD. This couple has four children and one granddaughter. And um, they, um, Gretchen serves as the Relief Society president. And um, Brett serves as the, tell me your church assignment at Wisconsin. It's rather obscure. Communications uh, director for the coordinating council in Wisconsin. So thanks for the work you're doing in Wisconsin for our church and the work you're doing in other circles. Gretchen, will you just introduce your yourself, your family to our listeners? Sure. So um, Brett and I have been married for 30 years and um, we have four children. Mary's 27, married, lives in Bentonville, Arkansas with our grandchild, Diana. And then I have three teenagers at home. Clara's 17, Sam is 14, and Gus is 12. And um, I'm the oldest of five kids. My parents live in Tacoma, Washington. Um, three of my brothers live there. Normally, my, my, the oldest of the three brothers is mission president in Prague at the moment. And then I have a sister who lives here in Bountiful. Um, we have a missionary from our stake in Prague. What an interesting place to be a mission president right now. Yeah. All mission presidents around the church. Those homecoming talks that are going to come home after experiencing COVID are going to be really unique experiences. Um, it's really cool you served in Paris. Have you two been back to Paris since your own mission? Um, when we were in our late 20s and early 30s, we lived in England for six years. And so I went to France every chance I could get. So we've, I've been back a lot. And then since we have moved back to the States, um, so it, w- it would have been 17 years ago that we've moved back to the States. I've, I've still been back there every couple of years. Love, love France. That's great. Yeah. Wonderful place. Does Brett learn any French in your 30 years of marriage? We. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> Not very much. No. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. What took you to England? So I had a, an opportunity to further my career as a consulting psychologist. So that was our, our first opportunity for me to be a consultant in my field. Talk about what it is to be a corporate um, consultant. What consulting psychologist, if I said that right? So briefly, you did. Yes. Briefly, it's, it's helping senior executives uh, 
grow and develop themselves and grow and develop their people, improve their culture, make it a better place to work. And how long has that been your career? And talk about your education just for a second, Brett. So I have a PhD in psychology as well, but never practiced clinically. Um, I have been doing executive coaching and leadership for over 25 years. And what part of England were you in? We were in the south, near uh, south of London, near Guildford. That is great. Um, I love England, served a mission there, and and so I love that country. What a wonderful life experiences you two have. Talk about your decision to go um, get a PhD, Gretchen. That's <laughs> just talk about that. Well, um, I I started out in French um, and loved that. That really passionate about the French language, culture, history, literature, everything. And um, I think the reason why I just kept going to school is because um, we had our daughter, Mary, and then we, I felt very, very strongly about spending as much time with her as I possibly could, because for a long time, it looked like we were just going to have one child. And so I didn't want to work full time because I wanted to be with her. And um, at the same time, I was feeling unchallenged intellectually. So I just kept going to school and um, loved it. And, and it was my own private, wonderful little world where I got to just really do a deep dive into all things that had to do with France and French and the language and all of that. And um, along the way, I got a master's degree from Wayne State University in language and culture. And then when we moved to England, I got a master's degree at Oxford, which was That's thrilling. Cool. It was amazing. And um, that was p- focused mostly on women writers in medieval France, which was fantastic. And um, I did a lot of paleography. So looking at um, antique manuscripts, things like that, that was really cool. And then when we moved to Chicago, after we came back from England, I started um, the PhD program at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and took that all the way to the dissertation and never uh, started it, but never finished it, never proposed, um, because we ended up having three more children. And um, so I just paused on that. And then... um, Fast forward to about five years ago, um, Brett and I started our own business. Um, and tell our listeners the name of your business. It's Siemens Leadership. Okay. And um, Brett's a solo practitioner, but um, I do a lot of the support, a lot of the psychometric testing, administration, things like that. And soon to be consulting. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, I've always been interested in psychology, but. Um, just felt like it was a good time to continue my education. And I had taught um, most recently at Cardinal Stritch University in French. And I, I love teaching, but I don't really enjoy academia very much. And so um, we just switched gears. And so now I'm almost done with this PhD. I'm, I'm doing um, a distance learning program at Saybrook University, which has been really, really great, especially during this last year or so with COVID. So that's kind of a 
long story. Sorry. It's to really tell you good about for everything. listeners to hear stories. Um, I like hearing stories of women that have in our in our faith that have multiple paths. And um there's and I just like your education and all the different interests and ways you've served and and that you're now doing this PhD in psychology that's kind of been put on hold as you've had kids. And I kind of recognized in my twenties growing up, the women my age, their careers significantly changed when they got married and had kids. And I recognize that if I never got married and never and had kids or didn't have kids, got married, not get, get married, didn't affect my career. That was just sort of, you know, and I just, it, that's been in my brain for about 30 years. But would you, before we talk about your PhD and what you're doing, we talk to younger LDS women. You used a phrase in there where I, I just know there's a, young, a lot of younger LDS women that are managing sort of, I have these dreams, these career dreams, and, and I also um, would like to be a mother and spend time with my kids. And I, I, there's just a lot of conflict on those two roads and how to manage that. And there can be real guilt for younger, for all age group LDS mothers that are in careers and raising families. And any just kind things you'd like to say to that group as you've been walking this road firsthand for multiple decades? Yeah. Um, I would say that um, even though I've had the opportunity to get a lot of education over the years, that I've never really built a career for myself. And I've done that. Um, Instead, I've kind of fulfilled myself instead with, with education. And luckily, you know, we've been able to make it on a one income. Um, but I would say that that was a conscious choice um, because I could have stopped going to school and started working somewhere and really pushed to get ahead in that career. and um, move on up and do all the things that you do when you have a career and you're very serious about it and passionate about it, which is great. But, um, our situation was unique. And having said that everyone's situation is unique. And so I think as, as a woman and as a young woman, you have to look at what you really want, you know, and and you all, everybody knows what they want and deep down, and listen to what people have to say. But in the end, my grandma used to say, I listen to everybody's advice and then I do what I want. And I think that, that that's important. You know, you know what you want, you know, what's important to you, you know, what, um, the, the pros and cons of decisions are after you weigh them. And, and then you also have to be flexible and open to opportunities that come your way. You may have everything perfectly planned out and then boom, something happens and you have to take a left turn and that's okay too. Um, I just think a lot of it comes from being willing to move in any direction to, you know, you might have to take a detour to get to where you want to go. Um, but it's important to, uh, listen to your heart, listen to your, your own conscious, listen, conscience, listen to you know, what's important to you. For me, it was staying home during those young, young years with my oldest. You know, I'm, I, I don't regret not building this fabulous career. Although sometimes, you know, I think it would be cool, but. Do you, do you kind of know you would have had a great career? 
I would hope so. Um, she would have. <laughs> I would hope so. I, I, I think that, you know, I, I look back at some of the things that, that I've said and done when I, when I've been in a business situation or like at, at a school or something like that. And I kind of cringe and I think, oh, that would have shot a hole in my career, you know, because I did that or did this. But um, in the end, it's all about learning and growing and becoming better and moving through things and processing, processing things differently as you get older and things like, I like that. that. I like that you've said everybody's got to kind of find their way and everybody's, you know, an LDS woman's path is just got to be her path and we've got to support that and, and every story is going to be a little different. And I think it's important to create self-worth for all of us on things we can control and our relationship with Heavenly Father and our commitment to each other and not necessarily on sort of these outward worldly things. I think a career is great. Me too, yeah. If not have a career, I think it's great. But I think we just got to create self-worth and in things that are more spiritual in nature, more long-term and not driven by worldly narratives. But I'm careful there. I hope I'd have inferred that a career is not a good thing because they're, I guess I'm the most sensitive to women that are at home with the kids right now in their 20s and 30s, knowing that they could be doing something very different and at times being hard on their self-worth, that's really hard sometimes to be home with a bunch of kids. Sure. And other women and even a husband is out there in the, and succeeding and getting a lot of support and and societal support. And so I'm sensitive to that group right now in particular. And I don't know if any of you have any things to say to that group. Well, you know, there's no reason why you can't have both. I mean, you can raise your children and, you know, get them to the place where you're feeling like you did a great job and, 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 you know, they're all happy and you're all happy and everything's going great. And then, you know, when you're 40 or 50 or 60, you can start a career. There's no reason why you can't start a career when you're a little older. Um, it when, takes some adjusting, right? Though, because there, for a, a woman to expect that she needs to change all the diapers and do all the dishes and pursue a master's degree or a PhD, uh, makes for that's crazy making so um you need to work things out as a as a couple and as a family in order to support mom's dreams because uh, those are as important if not more than than what's going on for the wage earner when we get to the other side it's not going to be about who had the better career mm-hmm. uh, talk about brett why you married somebody that wasn't a stay-at-home mom and was that threatening to you that your wife was succeeding in, in other areas. I think I know the answer to that, well, but share that with sure. our listeners, especially for men and women. I think that's good to hear. Sure. To be honest, you know, I, for a long time, I didn't want my wife to work outside the home because as a man that, that spoke to my ability to provide, you know, and so I had very traditional roles, but I quickly figured out that, that being married to an exceptional and intelligent and very independent woman meant that I needed to figure out how to support her dreams. And so out of our 30 years, would you say about four or five were years that we, one of us weren't in school between all of Gretchen's pursuits and mine. So we've, we've worked it out so that we've supported each other uh, a great deal. And it's meant uh, to be honest, I had to overcome 
my own bias that I didn't want Gretchen to be outside the home. And I wouldn't change a thing. Absolutely wouldn't change a thing. Because now she can teach French at any level. She can, as of December, she'll be able to be a practicing clinician. Uh, her her opportunities open wide. and Or she can hang out with our kids. It's her choice. And I'll support whatever she wants to do. Talk about, Brett, why you think um, your wife and is all these roles she's done has blessed your kids. Oh, it's especially uh, prevalent in, in our daughters. Uh, I, I, I hope we raise boys that are respectful of their mom and of, of women in general. But boy, our, our oldest two daughters are getting to the point where, um, Gretchen, you were telling me the other day your, your grand, grandparents told you you could be a, a nurse or an assistant. Uh, you yeah. know, our 17-year-old wants to be a forensic chemist. Cool. And we just celebrate that. We think that's the greatest thing. And it's because they've seen their mom uh, do exceptional things. Our, our oldest. I got to say, though, that being a nurse or an assistant is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And I say those things just, just because those were, were traditional expectations right, rather right. than uh, those are wonderful pursuits for people who want them. Um. And our, and our oldest is, is doing exceptional things as a young mother now. So we're watching her follow her dreams and be a young mom at the same time. So the, the ripples in the water are magnificent. I love that segment. I'm really glad we did that segment. And I'm probably a lot like you, Brett. As, <clears throat> and my dear wife, you know, I don't share too much of our personal stories because mostly your stories is, you know, we've raised six kids. Um, and she now as the kids are our youngest is 19 has done some of the things you're doing and is and I like what you said that why can't you go back to school in your 40s and 50s and why can't you start a career then and and so those of you that are younger thinking that door is shut because I'm at home with three kids and like you know and in my 30s yeah I wouldn't rule out what you might be doing in your 40s and 50s and the need for your contributions in our society um, for a long time and continue just to receive personal revelation for your path. But I love that I think strong men are not threatened by strong women, just like Brett is talking about his wife, and actually look, even though there may be some adjustments made from kind of our cultural bringing up, I think um, this that's a good story for men to, to recognize the role of strong women um, in their own lives. It helps strong women be better, and it's a, I think it's a real blessing to children and opens their vision to what their potential is that perhaps, especially for women, has not been fully realized just because there's been less people that have gone down the road, opened their vision for what they can become. And we don't talk politics on this podcast. I'm trying to keep you unified around LGBTQ issues and politics obviously can divide us. And so I'm sensitive to politics on this podcast, but we do have a woman vice president in the United States. And all of us have perhaps seen those pictures of all the vice presidents in the United States up until her picture. And, and they're all men. And there's something about that. If I put myself in the feet of a young woman and I get, and a young man about the importance of that and how that to me is progress in our society and creates vision for people that have had a harder road. And, and so anyway, that's kind of a whole tangent. Any more comments before we move on from that topic? I just think there's a lot of voices out there that uh, that fight against women 
chasing their dreams. And so I, I suggest we follow the advice of Gretchen's grandma. <laughs> so let's talk about your PhD um, and talk about the focus of your dissertation and, and you're recruiting people to be a part of, you know, I'm not using the right vocabulary, part of your dissertation. So just introduce that to us as well as your email address for people that want to potentially be a part of your dissertation. Sure. So um, I'm especially interested in um, kids who come home early from their mission. And I'm not talking about kids who have come home early because of COVID. That could be a completely different study, which might be fun to do later on. But um, I'm talking about kids who have come home for other reasons. And um, I'm really interested in this intersection between an early return uh, and spiritual development and anxiety and sort of that that spot right there where those three things meet. Um, you know, in the last 30 years, the prevalence of early returns has just skyrocketed. And I think we're all aware of that and we're all distressed by that. And um, we're also distressed by how troubling that can be for the missionary and for um families. And, um, I think we all recognize that there needs to be a shift in how we look at that phenomenon. It, we need to be more accommodating and caring and loving and welcoming and, um, encouraging to kids who come home for whatever reason. And, um, I think that's the main reason why I wanted to look at at this specific topic is, is to help change the culture of our church. Um, so that's, that's the main hope. So for participants, for my dissertation, um, I, I would like to talk to anybody who'd be willing to speak to me. It would be an hour or so of just, um, me asking questions and taking down answers. Um, I'm especially interested in people who've come home early because of anxiety. Uh, so you can reach me at my email. This is my school email. It's G Siemens spelled G S E A M O N S at saybrook.edu. And Saybrook is spelled S A Y B R O O K. And are you looking for early release missionaries in the last five years, last 10 years, last one year? Ideally, um, it would be great if, if former missionaries were under 30, under the age of 30, um, because I'm looking more specifically at um, anxiety in younger people. So, Talk about this intersection of early release missionaries and anxiety, just, and talk about why, and I, I assume there's kind of some hypothesis in your mind as you're doing this PhD. Just talk more on this subject. All right. So, um, so adolescent anxiety diagnoses are up 17% within the last 10 years. It's a huge jump. Um, 20, 28% of college students claim that anxiety affects their academic performance in some way. Uh, 30% of young people will qualify for an anxiety diagnosis sometime in their young life. So we're dealing with a huge proportion of young people experiencing anxiety for lots of different reasons. And there are a lot of theories out there 
as to why we have this increase of anxiety in, in young people. Um, you know, now when I look at my own kids and when I look at Instagram, for example, or TikTok and, and see what everybody's doing, you know, young kids are converting camper vans and RVs and traveling all around the world and putting careers on hold. And there seems to be this explosion of, uh, expression and adventure and experience and what it's done, which is great. But what it's done is it also increases uncertainty and a little bit of instability, some comparison between the person that's got the sweet sprinter camper van and someone who's maybe in the back of a Subaru, you know, um, and, you know, this sort of emancipation from the nuclear family, from the mom and the dad and, and, or, or a non-traditional family to, uh, all of a sudden, not only living on your own, but living on your own out there, it, it's, it's a strange new world. And, um, you add to that, the cell phone, this little tiny thing that all of a sudden gives you unlimited access to all the information out there and good and bad. And, um, there's also several, there are also several macro social changes that have taken place over the last 30 years that have really shifted how our young people behave. And one of those is that there's a greater pressure to attend a post-secondary education because, um, you know, with our technical revolution, a lot of the jobs that our parents and grandparents did are done by machines. So there's more pressure to go to school after high school. Um, that makes it so that careers are more complex and um, less secure. And I think we're feeling that even more so now with COVID. Um, and our parents are willing to bridge the gap between the time that the kids get the education and get the job. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, my parents age and, and a little bit younger have kids living at home with them. Um, another thing that's really changed things in the past 30 years is birth control. You know, sex has become more of a, a social interaction than, um, what it was for our parents and grandparents. And then, um, you know, there are some other things that, that have happened over the past 30 years. Um, the women's movement, the youth movement, um, all these things have contributed to really change the way our society works. And our young people are trying to adapt and it's hard. It's not easy. You know, we've, as parents and grandparents, we have expectations based on what our lives were like. And they're living in a world that's nothing like what, what we lived. So, you know, it's a tough time, really tough. And I think that all of these things and more things that I haven't even mentioned or thought of or dreamt up are contributing to this epidemic of anxiety in our young people. 
Yeah. You know, I think about that, Gretchen. I think about sitting in church sometimes and we talk about the youth and sometimes the things we say are really kind and sometimes they're not. And, um, and so that I think a lot, and I'm shifting gears a little bit, a lot of parents will are aware of the increased risk or the increased presence of anxiety. And then we often say it's because of one thing and we want to kind of simplify it. So I love what you just said because it's not simple. And if we just eliminated cell phones, I'm not sure then anxiety proportionally goes down because you pointed out the role of graduate education and how that's changed and the pressure to get into a graduate program. And obviously the anxiety, because anxiety is about the future. And if you're preparing in the fourth grade to get into graduate, because that's sort of what we do, that can create, I'm being a little um, facetious there, but Talk, this is a tangent a little bit. I want to make sure we stay focused on your PhD and getting participants, but talk to young mothers or mothers in particular that are seeing anxiety in their kids. What are signs of anxiety and what advice do you have for parents wanting to manage anxiety in their kids or, or create a family? Let's just, this is another question. It's kind of, or they're even starting a family and they want to create a culture of of increasing the chance that there'll be less anxiety in the family. So I, I have to premise this by saying that I'm not an expert yet <laughs> on anxiety, but I have, you know, four children yeah. and um, I've done some research and, and taken a few classes on anxiety and its effects. And a couple of things came to mind. Um, I think the most loving, um, healthy homes have high expectations and a huge amount of love to go with that. So you expect a lot of your kids, you expect them to work hard, you expect them to be respectful, but you also love them to bits. And, and when they make a mistake, it's answered with love. And, um, you know, your the communication is another huge important component of raising well-adjusted kids. So if um, just an example, and, and a lot of it's nonverbal. So uh, the other day, and this is maybe a, a very small sort of innocuous example, but our 12-year-old is a swimmer and I told him that he was going to participate in an inner squad meet in a couple of weeks. And he looked at me, this happy-go-lucky guy, and his little eyes filled with tears so fast. And I, I was alarmed, but also in my head, I'm like, what's the big deal? It's just an inner squad meet. All you have to do is dive in the pool and swim a couple of laps. And once I talked to him for a bit and realized that he was really nervous about diving in the pool because a couple of years ago he had done that and bashed his head against the bottom. And, um, so I think the other thing, I mean, Brett or Brett and I, Brett will confirm this is that a lot of times the communication happens at 11 at night when you're exhausted and the teenager is sitting at the end of your bed and, you know, (laughs) you'd rather go to bed than listen to, you know, an endless tale of, whatever, you know? So I think communication, high standards, hard work, um, a 
a lot, a lot of love. I think that's all really important. Um, but one thing that I'm still struggling with is also not measuring a child's success or failure by your standard that, that you had when you were growing up. Because everything that I just explained demonstrates that what they're going through and what they're living, these kids, is just, it's like a different planet from, from ours, from our, the planet of our childhood. And so um, it's, it's almost like learning a new language or getting to know a new culture, even though like you're living in the house with this alien, you've, <laughs> you've got to get to know them. You've got to get to understand the world that they're living in before you understand what's going on. Um, that's a really good segment too. Um, I'm thinking of your 12-year-old son and that story you told about this regional swim meet, if I'm using the right language, and, and you saw tears in his eyes. And I'm thinking about that a moment where you recognized and were able to get to the bottom of what was going on there. And I reckon, and I, if you had said, just get over, it's not a big deal, man up. The next time a situation like that would have come, you would have taught him how to behave and to keep that inside of him, which obviously is not the right thing to do. And it doesn't create a feeling you're safe for him and he can fully open up, even if it's embarrassing. Like, yeah, he, on one level, you realize diving in the water is not a big deal, but he got hit his head mm -hmm. and that's a real thing. And there's some I, PTSD is, PTSD is probably too big of a term, but there's some residual impact on him and you were able to get to that and, and maybe more importantly, have a framework where you're safe so that he can open up down the road when things get more complex than that. What a great parenting story. Kind of a, not a big deal. You two may never remember that story in a couple of years from now, but it, the principle there is powerful. Any more thoughts on that? And I love your... I love what you said. You shouldn't compare your kids to you, even if it's like a whole foreign world. And I would say, and I think you're doing this in your home, not compare them to each other. I at times have done that as a parent, either directly or in my mind. And I just have tried to recognize each of our kids are unique premortal spirits with a unique premortal plan. And we have high standards in our home, but we want to create a feeling that each of our kids is, needs to create their own path. And certainly not creating, it can help to have vision from other siblings, just like your vision of, of your work is creating vision for your children. So I think there's some wonderful dynamics can happen in a family that can be positive. But if it's the pride of keeping up with a sibling or a culture that wants all the siblings to sort of hit the same standards, then that can be obviously just very difficult for kids. Any more thoughts on this topic? Um, the I, only thing I, <clears throat> excuse me, I would add is just the idea of, of facilitating that it's okay to ask for help, that, uh, you don't need to keep all of this inside, especially when they're teenagers, when the world teaches them that parents don't understand and can't relate that, uh, they need to deal with their problems on their own. But, uh, how do you do that as a parent? So how, how do you create a a way that your teenagers will talk to what's really going on in their life? Well, part of it is that 11 o'clock bedtime routine. If, if uh, it, you need to be ready to talk when the kids want to open up 
And if they find that, that you're not, that you're on your phone or you're not interested in what they've got to say, they'll go somewhere else or they'll keep it inside. So I'd say that's the, the number one thing is to be receptive when they're ready and not try and pry it out of them. I think 90% of my good parenting, which is questionable, but 90% of my good parenting is done in the nonverbal communication zone. So, um, and I think that's one of the blessings of motherhood is that we have kind of that sixth sense with our kids. And, you know, when a kid walks into a room, you can tell something's off. And, and I think it's really important to respond to that and to know when to push and know when to give it a little time and, you know, learn how each kid communicates. And it's, it's a big job, but um, I think it's really important to, you know, watch for the signs because they're not going to tell you, you know, it's, it's some, well, some kids do, some kids tell you everything, but my kids don't, my kids wait for me to figure it out. Just to draw a line under that, I have a fantasy that that great communication happens during family home evening or come follow me discussions. It never does. <laughs> it's always in the car on the way to whatever in those small moments when you've got a, a window. Um, a couple of thoughts. You and my wife have the same sixth sense, and I, she has done that over and over the years, sensitive to something's going on with a kid. And just knowing, and sometimes I'm not clued into that. And and maybe men can have that too, if we were more sensitive. But for you women, moms, I just, I think that's a a gift that's been given to you. And I think you can learn to continue to nurture that and have insights and and create um, a way for your kids to open up and recognize it may not be at the moment you're getting that feeling. It may come later in a car ride or an 11 p.m. discussion. I've also thought that um, one of the ways to do this in a family is to just have a narrative where we're always saying kind things about other people. And we're saying, we just, we're saying kind things about ward people. We're saying kind things about early release missionaries. We're saying kind things about people that leave the church. We're saying kind things about people in other political parties, about LGBTQ people. It doesn't mean we compromise our values or compromise the commandments or standards, but we just, Try to create a feeling of in the family that my parents, you know, I just hear them always being kind about people that are different than them. And yeah, they talk about differences like between political parties. There's differences there, but there's no mean to demonize or villainize another political party or another faith. And I've wondered if that then creates a culture that if I have to open as a kid, that I just kind of know my parents are going to be kind because I'm actually now in one of those groups possibly or just needing to talk about complicated stuff. So let's talk more. So anxiety and release missionaries fascinates me, Gretchen. If, <clears throat> if, if the cumulative anxiety level for all missionaries leaving in 1980 was 12% and now it's 25%, if I'm making these numbers up, if we could dial it back down to 12%, would then the early missionaries go to the same rate it was back then? Or is there more to early release missionaries than just the higher anxiety? Uh, you, you're asking me if, if 
if we have more releases because, because of higher anxiety or if it's more complicated than that? Well, I can tell you that the number one reason why missionaries come home early is because of anxiety. Um, the church is famously very quiet about its statistics um, concerning, you know, early releases and things like that. Um, as they, sh- they should be, it's confidential information. Um, but we don't have solid numbers. Um, there have been a couple of recent studies that have come out that, that take a guess at it through, you know, surveying, um, young, young people. So we sort of have an idea. Um, and, and you can talk to people in the missionary department who also have an idea and they're pretty forthcoming with numbers, but we don't have any official church statements about that, about numbers or anything like that. Um, so it's, it's hard to even make an educated guess, but, um, I don't think that anxiety in the mission field is only a church thing. I think it's a society thing. Good point. I think, uh, if you had a Catholic kid who all of a sudden was an LDS kid and on a mission. I think that that kid has just as much potential to feel anxiety as, as the LDS kid. What I'm trying to say is um, I think all young people in the United States are experiencing an increase in anxiety. And so that in turn makes it so that we have that same ratio amongst LDS kids on missions. Um, and, and I, and I think anxiety is more prevalent because of the things I talked about earlier. Um, having said that, I think there are pressures that exist within our culture as, as Latter-day Saints that add to that. Talk about that. Um, well, we as members of the church have expectations. We, uh, are taught things, good things that, um, that as good members of the church, we, we want to be obedient. We want to serve the Lord. We want to make our parents happy. We, you know, we want to make our grandparents happy and, you know, we want to open that letter and, and read where we're going and have the party and, um, you know, participate in all those cultural rites of passage that, have been celebrated for so, so long. And these are good things. But when things happen randomly that, that, that don't really fit into that narrative, it, it can be, it can cause anxiety. It, it can be a problem. Um, and, you know, when expectations aren't met, it, it's hard when you're young and, and you have, a certain idea in your head and it, it doesn't come to pass. It, it, it's an adjustment. It's difficult. Um, plus our culture really emphasizes perfection a lot. And so, you know, if things aren't perfect, um, they're not perfect. And that can be hard too. you know, we're anything less than an A is not an A. And so, um, I think that causes, I think that can cause anxiety too. And then if you've 
fold that into missionary service at a full-time basis, anyone who served a mission will know that there's pressures to be the perfect missionary. And you add to that uh, a shift in cultural expectations. If you go somewhere foreign, all of a sudden you're learning a new language. You're living with someone you've never met before. You have all these rules. Um, you you don't really, and this this is kind of getting into my dissertation. You may not feel about your testimony the way you think you should feel. You may feel things about the gospel or the church or about God or about the eternal family or about your sexuality that don't sort of fit into the LDS paradigm. And that can cause anxiety. So all these things we've been discussing create layers and layers and layers and layers of of potential for anxiety on a, on a mission. And it's a lot of pressure. If you look at every single factor, every single component, there's a lot going on there. Just keep, yeah, I want you to keep talking. I do, there's a couple of these terms, cultural terms, exact obedience, perfect obedience that are tremendously motivating to some, but for some, they cause incredible amounts of anxiety. And especially with that being linked into somebody else's salvation and needing to do this on a personal level as a missionary, not just for me, um, but now I'm responsible to be exactly obedient and perfectly obedient so I can find the elect in my area that are waiting to hear the gospel. That can be very overwhelming for some missionaries and lead to anxiety, tremendous anxiety, because no one can be exactly obedient or perfectly obedient. And I think the Lord will work through imperfect people trying to do the best they can to find the elect in your area. And I do believe in obedience, but I believe in reality. And I think an unanxious missionary is more likely to find that um, that person in his or her area looking for the gospel than someone who's consumed with anxiety because of the cultural things that we've created. Talk more. I just want you to keep talking, Gretchen, about this intersection of early release and anxiety. If you want to talk about spiritual development and how potentially anxiety can slow um, or change spiritual development. Sure. So um, let me just define spiritual development. Um, It's spiritual development is sort of a component of basic human development. Um, one of the definitions is how people conceptualize God and how that relationship evolves throughout the lifespan. So it's a ever-changing, ever-moving, sort of oscillating process um, with dips and turns. Um, it's not um, it's not like this clean staircase that we take. Um, having said that, Um, There are all sorts of spiritual development theories out there. And the first and probably most um, popular one um, is James Fowler's Stages of Faith, which he adapted from Erickson and Piaget. And what it basically is, is that um, people take these steps, these stages, they go through these stages in spiritual development as they get older 
And um, even though this is sort of formulaic and um, not as flexible or fluid as I would like, I, I tend to be drawn to that developmental theory because as members of the church, we're very obsessed with rites of passage stages. We baptize at eight. We graduate from primary at 12 and we recite the articles of faith in sacrament meeting. And then at 16, we can date. And as we go through the young men, young women program, you know, we move from class to class and, and boys in the priesthood, you know, move from being deacons and teachers and priests. And, and, and we, we progress in stages through the church's programs. And so that's why I feel like the stage theory sort of fits best with what I'm trying to do in my dissertation. But I also want to say that there are lots of other theories out there. There are theories that emphasize more the emotional attachment with God, like you would, um, with anybody else. So like it, uh, you would have like a secure attachment with God or, um, a, an avoidant attachment with God. It's a more, uh, emotional attachment theory base. Um, there's also a theory that, and I wouldn't say that this is a developmental theory, but I kind of see it this way. And this is the idea of SQ or spiritual intelligence. It's similar to um, the whole idea of emotional intelligence, um, and it's it's sort of the best intelligence that you've got, right? Your spiritual intelligence, how you react to people, how how you feel about things, um, and and sort of how your soul navigates the world. Um, but but I'm focusing on on stage theories and. Um, and more specifically, there are uh, two stages um, that I focus on in my dissertation. One is called the synthetic conventional stage, and it's sort of the teenage stage, basically. And then the fourth stage is the individuative reflective stage, and this is more the 20s and 30s. So um, what I'm specifically interested is the transition between those two. And every time Fowler um, asserts that every time you pass from one stage to another, there's a struggle and you question your previous beliefs and then you um, may or may not have some kind of crisis that corresponds to those beliefs and transitioning into new ones. And then there's, of course, a period of time where you get used to the new stage, get used to the new ideas and beliefs. And so I don't explicitly say this in my dissertation, but I'm thinking that what happens is that sometimes when young people are on missions, they pass from one stage to the next and they have this crisis and it's alarming. It causes anxiety and it's hard to know how to to navigate that. It's hard to know what to do. How, why am I having a crisis of faith on my mission? And does this have to do with my self-worth? Does this have to do with my mission president? Is it because my companion's difficult? Is it because I can't speak the language? Is it because, I, you know, should I have even done this? You know, what, what's going on? So I think that 
spiritual development, while it's necessary and good, it's not always pleasant. And I think that on top of everything we've talked about before concerning anxiety, I think that is for me, the one thing I really want to look at is how we can help our young kids in the church navigate spiritual development while they're on a mission so that they are more successful, so that they have less anxiety, so that maybe those early release numbers go down a bit. That's a really good segment. I've never thought about the stages of development applying to missionaries. And um, I could see how that could be triggered on a mission, especially if you're growing up in a a predominantly LDS culture, and then you're for the first time sort of exposed to the world, quote unquote, in a good way. And you see people of other faiths and people just outside of your normal circle doing well. And you're seeing some people come into the church and, but other people, you know, you just see, and it, and it get, lifts your vision of the human family. And that maybe is analogous to stages of faith development, which is a good thing, but it causes anxiety and you, and you leave some of the last stage behind and you never usually go back and you're enhanced in a broader way, but you miss sometimes the earlier stages and just the simplicity of the earlier stages um, as life gets more complex and more nuanced and there's beauty in that, but there's also anxiety to your point. Just a couple podcasts. We've I was just rec- remembering we've done a couple podcasts. If anybody wants to go deeper on the stages of faith, we did episode one forty four with Janice Spangler. Um, that's really focused on faith transitions and Latter Day Saints as they go through fouler stages of faith, especially as they try to stay in as they get into the later phases. That as they're just exposed the complexities of our faith and and. Um, Another one we did is episode 193 with Dr. Scott Brethwaite at BYU, Associate Professor of Psychology. He also talks about um, the stages of faith, if I'm remembering his podcast. So that's a really important thing. And I wish we could, I just think it's a framework. I have gone through in the podcast, I've mentioned this listeners, listeners, my own mini faith crisis is what I call it, especially as I connected with LGBTQ people as a singles word bishop. And I just recognize the complexity of their road compared to my road. <laughs> and they're hearing their story just built a lot of empathy for how difficult their road can and is. Um, and it, it probably moved me into a different stage of faith in that space where everything was more simple and, a, and, <clears throat> and just the complexities if you're LGBTQ and a Latter-day Saint and so, you know, that generated what I call a mini faith crisis for me as I just moved from stages. And I, I miss that earlier stage sometimes, but I'm glad to be in this stage where I just understand the complexities of people outside of more and normal circle and the road they walk. And I feel like I'm glad to be there because I can just walk with them and understand that and better honor my covenants to bear, mourn, and comfort as I better understand the road they walk and maybe can help reduce the anxiety and the complexity of their life because I'm willing to sort of learn about that. So there's a benefit of being in these later phases. But I also recognize not everybody will go through every phase and it's not a sign of weakness or spiritual immaturity. Um, It's just sort of a sign of, it's just kind of unique to every Latter-day Saint on how many of these stages they're going to go through. I have wonderful people in 
in my life that will probably never go through the complex stages I've gone through. And they don't, I don't want to draw them through the stages I've gone through because <laughs> it's complex and it's painful and you miss the earlier stages. Um, any thoughts on any of that? And I'll turn it back to you. And we're coming close to the hour mark. So I just kind of turn it back to you for any other comments, other sections, anything else you want to share? Um, I just, I just wanted to mention as well that a mission is so unique. It is uniquely a Latter-day Saint phenomenon. I don't know of any other situation, project, undertaking like it anywhere. Um, And it is sort of like the pinnacle of a young person's life. It's very intense. There's so much preparation and so much pomp and um, so many expectations surrounding it. And then you get out there and lots of times it's not very fun. It's difficult and um, it's not what you expected. It's not the best two years. And um, at the same time, maybe you've had some personal revelations surrounding going on a mission and you know you're supposed to be there. So here you are knowing where you, that you're supposed to be where you are and it's a nightmare and um, everybody else seems to be doing okay. And um, then you have this crisis of faith. In addition to all of that, when you're on a mission, you're on your knees five, six times a day. You're teaching the gospel over and over and over again. You're, you're spending hours and hours studying. So you're in a situation where your spirituality and your um, focus on spiritual things is very, very intense, unlike any other time in your life. So I think that adds to this pressure cooker of of a situation that can induce anxiety. Um, And and I think as as a culture, we tend to line it with roses and and make it this beautiful, wonderful thing, which it is in many, many ways. But I think as as a Latter-day Saint culture, we need to take a step back, be a little bit more realistic about what a mission is, what it entails, how complicated it is, how difficult it is, we need to be teaching our kids that it may not be the best two years, that if they decide they want to go, that they need to understand that it's going to be very, very hard. Um, and, you know, there are some ways to do that. We won't talk about that today, but, I, you know, I think, I think we need to take a little bit of the romance out of it, which is sad, but it's, it, we've got to do it. We've got to do it for the sake of the the kids who are coming up and and getting ready to go. I like, I really agree with that. I think there's a culture and we've had one son particularly struggle with his emotional health and the culture that perhaps we created as a family in a church and was present as mission is he wasn't going to talk to anybody about it. He was really struggling emotionally. He thought it was a spiritual weakness. He thought, you know, his mind just went places that a therapist would never have taken him. Um, because he just, and he thought he saw, and so it was just, he got in a really difficult spot and the, and the culture that existed around and we don't open up about this kind of stuff. And I've thought of, <clears throat> as you were talking, I thought of the blessing that missionaries can call home 
weekly and oh yeah that's huge and facetime and whatever the technology allows but i think as part of that door opening i think we need to do what you suggest and create a culture before missionaries are leaving as parents and local leaders that you need to tell us what's going on um we're not just here on those weekly calls to hear all the rosy experiences you've had you need to we it's going to be hard and you're going to have the heart and it's okay to tell us that even if your brother never told us that (laughs) or every homecoming talk you've ever heard growing up never said any of that because then i think we're able to as parents receive better personal revelation for the needs of our children as one son in particular opened up it allowed us to actually under help diagnose what was going on with him we as parents um and then get him the right kind of therapist through the mission present the proper channels to deal with the emotional issue that he was dealing with but that came because he just finally opened up and we were able to then connect the dots a little bit and just so i really agree with that and that isn't a change of doctrine um, but we can't create a narrative listeners that this generation's weak and that's why they're coming home or we were tougher and they're not as tough. And that to me, and you're both shaking your heads as I say that, and some of you listeners are doing the same thing. We need to change that narrative. It's not consistent with our baptism covenants. It doesn't create a way of, it, it makes, it's, it's playing small ball and, making our church smaller and and less loving and less accepting and less helpful. Brad, I don't know if you have any thoughts to share on this subject. <clears throat> Just my final thought. I'm really pleased with the work Gretchen is doing, and I, I'm, I'm very hopeful because of what President Nelson is asking us to do as individuals is a very personal process of trying to hear him. And if we can help young people make those spiritual transitions before they go on their mission or help them navigate it while they're on their mission and understand what's happening, uh, and understand the difficulties, then we'll all be better off. Gretchen, any, I want to make sure you give your email again. Anything you'd like to share in closing? Um, no, I... And do I, you want people, just early release missionaries, to reach out to you, or people that have anxiety that aren't an early release missionary? Just so, once again, clarify what sure. kind of participants. Yeah, so um, I do have pretty specific parameters, and they are that... Um, the participants have to have come home, been released early from a mission. Um, it doesn't matter if it's one month or 18 months or whatever, but um, they have to have come home early. I, I would prefer that they were under the age of 30 um, and that that anxiety was a component or a factor in the decision to come home. So if I came home for other reasons and anxiety was part of my story, that would still be okay for yes, me to contact. Yes, that would be fine. Um, if, if someone, for example, got in a car accident or something and had to come home, then, then that wouldn't work. But, um, and even listeners, if you've had an infield, what's the right term for that? A mess infield mess up. <laughs> There's a better term that church uses or a belated confession. Um, it's, you know, the infield mess ups, that might send you home. There may be an anxiety component of that. It might be you really didn't. I mean, it still is a sin. You still got sent home and I'm not trying to change that, but sometimes at the bottom of the iceberg for a infield infraction, maybe that's the better term could be an emotional um, situation that you're dealing with in that way. And you recognize that's not the way to deal with it. And it got you sent home. But if that's part of your story, you might reach out to Gretchen too because um, there might be multiple components as part of the reason you came home. 
we might develop more empathy for missionaries that go out and mess up. Um, obviously, that's not what they wanted to do, he or she on their outbound plane ride or however you got to your mission. And that may, there may be some sort of a, a coping mechanism that led to something like that, that, you know, it may not just be, I want to go mess up today and sure. get sent yes. home. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, please, I, w- I would love to talk to to anybody about that. Um, again, my email address is G Siemens. So G-S-E-A-M-O-N-S at saybrook.edu. Saybrook is spelled S-A-Y-B-R-O-O-K. All right. We're grateful to have Gretchen on the podcast. It's really cool what you're doing with the PhD in psychology. I can't wait to sort of get updates in the next two, five, 10 years, the work you're doing post-PhD and the need for this work in um, our church and really in society and your role to help us better understand. And if you'd ever like to come back on the podcast post-PhD and kind of share, there's just a need for this kind of content. And many of you are looking for the kind of content and the work that Gretchen's doing. So Gretchen and Brett Siemens, thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thank you.